1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Media, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Hülle Stangard Jensen, Associate Professor in the Department of History and Classical Studies at Aarhus University, Denmark, and the author of Sensby Street, A Transnational History. The book was published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Good evening, Hello. How are you tonight? I'm good, thank you, and how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your background and training as we get started?
0: Yes, I can. Um, So I'm an MA in history and Danish, and uh, from Roskilde University, which is a sort of uh, problem-oriented project-focused research uh, university in Denmark. And then I've done a PhD in uh, history At the European University Institute in Florence, Italy Um, and I've been, uh, you know, I've done fellowships in um, the US and then the UK, Sweden, Norway, so I've been in a lot of places. Um, Now I'm, yeah, as you said, an associate professor in History and classical in the Department of History and Classical Studies at Aarhus University. Um, I also um, co direct the Center for uh, Digital History in Aarhus, so I do a lot of digital history in my sort of daily um, teaching.
1: Excellent, excellent. So, how do you get from uh, history and digital history in particular to talking about Sesame Street. I mean, for many children around the world, it was a staple of education and entertainment. So what piqued your interest in turning to it as a historian?
0: Well, so actually, it's um, for my MA thesis, which was at this university that I went to that is sort of, you know, Uh, research-focused, problem-oriented, half a PhD, basically. It's your MA thesis. Um, But I did um, something on the influence of 68 and counterculture on Danish children's television. And during the thesis, I found this frog, which was not Kermit the Frog. I've never watched Sesame Street as a child because it was never bought by Danish children's television. But um, there is another frog on Danish children's television, which is called Kai but he's like a jazz frog and he will teach you about not numbers and letters but jazz standing up to adult authorities and being friends with a parrot and um, I found out that he was inspired by Kermit the frog Um, so that got me really interested in Sesame Street and what that was and this inspiration because the, the producer who um, who was very inspired by Kermit to make this Danish frog, he, he talked a lot in his papers about like how he liked some of Sesame Street, but not all of it. And this sort of very um, uh, sort of contrasted, um, it was fear and fascination relationship with Sesame Street it really piqued my interest uh, as an MA student. But then I did my PhD, but something completely different. Um, And then I, um, when I came back after doing my PhD, it was like the system history hadn't left me that that would be an excellent sort of prism for understanding childhood in, and the relationship between childhood and television and education in in many different countries would, would be a good, like, because I had failed cases and I had successful cases, and it would be a great thing to do, like to do a comparative study on.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I was thinking, um, you know, in the last few years, there have been several kind of uh, popular books, academic books, Um, I believe there was a documentary based on Street Gang, which was very kind of nostalgic and laudatory about Sesame Street. How does your book differ in its approach from these other takes on Sesame Street we've seen in journalism and academia? And in particular, what do you feel a transnational approach brings that previous studies may have missed or even neglected?
0: Um, so I I think a lot of things when you tell me this, and and of course I've been following. So actually I've been writing this book since two thousand and fourteen. I've mm. published another book in between, but it's an it's a long sort of project uh, that I've been working on. Um, and I've also I've done a I've done quite a lot of like memory studies and Twitter and Sesame Street. So I see all these sort of nostalgic and very celebratory tales about Sesame Street often um, in that Twitter study um, but I think you know comparison like so uh, comparative history and also uh, global history transnational history all this where you compare and you look at sort of how do things travel and not travel gives you, it also turns around domestic history. So lots of the history that's been written about system history is focused on the US or individual countries. But comparing countries and also having this global angle um, turns, you know, you see what you miss or how you could... You know, what's missing in in all of these um, when you compare them, for instance, that the business of Sesame Street is rarely touched upon in these sort of street gang, you know, both the book and and the film, but also um, there's the sunny days. And look often, you know, the business side of things or... um, Oh, ideas of childhood as from childhood studies, childhood media studies, rarely touched upon. So that's really, really different. Also, there's that, you see that um, mm-hmm. ideas of childhood and education and TV viewership can come across as quite conservative sometimes in a U.S. context in, in Sesame Street when you compare it to what's happening in Europe at the same time. So it changes this domestic history and it changes a narrative. Also, this following the money, the business model, that is very different from the stories that you normally get. Well, so money is not, you know, as cute as the Muppet and it's not nostalgic. It's It's definitely money's dirty sometimes.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I I think a few years ago when Sesame Street left um, public television in the United States and went to HBO, there was this kind of um, blowback, understandably, of like you're desecrating a part of our childhood, you know, something that was meant for working class children and for children of color is now going to be increasingly inaccessible. And I think one of the things your history kind of hits upon is that There are always these kinds of commercial and capitalist efforts behind Sesame Street, and uh, particularly when we look in a transnational or global approach, we see kinds of, you know, potentially cultural imperialist frameworks come to mind, but also Mm -hmm. kind of countering that with kind of media proximity, and I think that that's one of the things your study does really well is show us that, yeah, sometimes it went into these places with American politics Mm-hmm. You know, in tow, and other times they had to localize the content because, you know, governments, particularly in Western Europe, as you focus in in your study, were kind of like, yeah, no, we see what we see what's going on here, and it doesn't <laughs> jive with what we're interested in. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll get more into that in, in a bit, but I'm to mm-hmm. begin, I guess, the um. I mean, the, I'm fascinated by the methodology here because you're traveling to seven different countries covering 11 archives. Can you tell us about this research process and, you know, how do you track down and organize all the information you're getting um, and even figure out where it's at?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a... So, so I, I started in 2014 uh, where I got some grants from the European Union and the Danish Research Council. So um, that it enabled me to travel to a lot of places also thanks to my husband who actually came with me and with our son. And so we, we've stayed abroad for quite, quite a long time. Um, Also, actually, I did some of it already when we were um, leaving, when I I knew we were leaving Italy. So so I've I've been fortunate to be able to travel to all these places. Um, I think it's been a sort of kind of snowballing with you know seeing, oh, so I go to one archive in Germany, I see, well, some of it is in another archive or I go to one archive in Sweden, I see, oh, some of it is in Norway, but also getting, it's growing organically seeing that i want these countries not you know like um selecting countries but i've i've organized all of my material in a program called Tropy, which is developed by uh, george mason their their what's it called the Rosensweek center for history and new media i think it's called um and that's been excellent so i've i've um because it enables you to create an archive of your own. And, you know, you can tag people. So I have, if I find people in my material from the US, um, I tag them and their names and the places. Also, I see, you know, some of the US material talking about Scandinavia, talking about Latin America, I I tag those and I and then I can tag across I can actually gather material across uh, sort of um, that's fits for my own conceptual model, the analytical levels that I want to look at um, in, in this really big database uh, where I have the all of the material in there and also I have all the metadata that I've you know put in myself um, <laughs> And so so really, that really helped me. And also, at some point, I, I figured out that one of the analytical levels, I wanted to have like a global level. So even though I'm focusing mostly in Western Europe, I wanted to see how children's television workshops, marketing to a global uh, audience uh, in Latin America, in Australia, in Japan, how that impacted the business strategy in local cases so like for instance Scandinavia Um, and then I wanted also I knew that I wanted to compare for instance western Germany to Scandinavia to Britain Um, so and and organizing the material entropy being able to create like a the perfect archive for my exact study was phenomenal, I wouldn't have been able to do this kind of big comparative study, I think, as well without that software.
1: Yeah, as I was reading it, I was marveling at how not only were you able to find all this stuff, because as you, you rightly note, those of us who work on children's media and children's media histories, a lot of that stuff wasn't saved, right? It was mm-hmm. seen as it's mm. seen as culturally devalued. It's seen as ephemeral, particularly if it's television or some other kind of um, daily entertainment. Um, and to see how much of it was actually preserved, particularly from an industrial side of things, was really great to see in, in
0: yeah, the study. Yeah, I, I ran into problems because there are different, like so, for comparative studies, you want you want something, you know, units of comparison to be, you know, good and substantial. So I had, I thought I wanted Italy and France in there at first, but they are on a, they they are not case studies on their own because that simply wasn't possible because the material wasn't kept. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah. I went to the Italian archives every day for two months because I was like and I don't believe you don't have anything but <laughs> I
1: didn't. Yeah I mean I, I I talk to my students about that when I teach history and historiography, right? It's you don't go into the archive with a question. You go into the archive, you see what they have and then you build the questions out from what you can find. Um, yes,
0: it's definitely a uh, you know, an iterative process.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's go back to the beginning. And I know mm-hmm. this has been covered a lot in, in earlier Sesame Street scholarship, but many of our listeners may not know it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how Sesame Street got developed by the Children's Television Workshop? And in particular, how was it actually closely aligned with 1960s U.S. social policy?
0: yeah so i think definitely you know as you point to 1960s um us uh sort of social policy the johnson government head start the war on poverty that is very very important so thinking about um you know um welfare um for all of you know for a very sort of for all americans um and thinking about um education as well but i think also uh, here education goes further back actually i think it's very important to think about um cold war and to think about sputnik um uh, launched in 1957 by the soviet union uh, or by the russians um that is sort of seen to in educational history to be like a wake-up point for at least some parts of of, of of the U.S. where you're like, oh, well, you know, they got this, you know, a satellite um, and now, you know, we've fallen behind in STEM and we have to do something. So I think in terms of education and the educational system um, as something where um, the Johnson um, government's focus on um Equality of opportunity um, as the educational system is somewhere that you can sort of not save but improve um, equality of opportunity for all Americans, um, also minorities. that is very important for, for system history, like uh, for the development of system history to understand this, because actually, you could say from a European perspective, comparative European perspective, um, thinking about the educational system as somewhere where the individual can improve their way of life, can Im- the individual can get to you know, live the American dream is um, a very individually focused way of thinking about how to improve society rather than to think about like big structural changes to think about like, well, this educational system might actually be biased in some way. But systemistry is a solution where you think about the individual child doing better when it gets into um. like the preschool child being better prepared for school. Um, So, you know, if you can teach them uh, numbers and letters and other sort of cognitive uh, school-like type um, um, uh, skills, then they will uh, do better in the educational system. So you think about, you know, improving you could say the individual child rather than the educational system. And that is a very, that ties in uh, very well with the way that the Johnson government um, is thinking at this moment. So it's a, you know, very liberal American (laughs) way of thinking.
1: Yeah. um, I actually studied at the university of Texas at Austin, which has Uh um, president Johnson's presidential library is there. Um, (laughs) And I think what uh, people may not realize because his, his reputation in the United States is kind of Johnson as this kind of um, aggressive, macho, mm. effective mm-hmm. legislator and negotiator, mm-hmm. but he actually was trained as a schoolteacher. Um, and that kind of gets uh, perhaps glossed over in his uh, legacy, but, you know, education programs were so central to him, going back to his time working with Mexican-American children in Texas. Um, and... It's interesting to see how, you know, the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, the Children's Television Workshop, and, and of course, Joan Ganz Cooney, who comes up a lot in your study, of course, um, are kind of central towards uh, developing the show um, and how it intersects with education policy, how it intersects with um, cognitive psychology at the same time. Yeah, uh, a-
0: a- absolutely. Cognitive psychology, and also because of the funding from the the first co- funding comes from the Carnegie Foundation or mm-hmm. the Carnegie Foundation, <laughs> is is um, you know, and they really emphasise psychology at this point in time that's the way you know that is also their way to solve poverty crises, that's the way to solve inequality in the American society so there's really this focus on education but also that the current education so John can Cooney is not very happy with the progressive education she's like well there's may way too much sort of like social and um, cultural learning in these you know preschool programs I want or we want um focus on like you know numeracy literacy um so so there is also in Sesame street is a criticism of the educational um system in the US that ties really well in with you know the criticism you know um from more conservative um leaning policymakers mm.
1: excellent excellent so as a show on this emerging public broadcasting, nationwide public broadcasting. Of course, the United States had localized public broadcasting before then, but this was really mm. about putting in place a nationwide public broadcasting that could be educational. So Sesame Street becomes is incredibly available and accessible around the country. Um, and it has a very different mandate than most industrially produced children's entertainment. So how did the children's television workshop position Sesame Street in the market? Um, And how did it perhaps position itself against things coming out of Walt Disney Productions, for instance?
0: Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I think also the Children's Television Workshop or Sesame Workshop, as it's called now, has been very good at sort of emphasizing some parts of their history and not others. And I think what I... What I was surprised about sometimes was how um, this is the, also a business model positioning you as somebody who fills a void in a market, right? And that was also what they did when they sort like when they were out looking for funding, um, saying like this is not, you know, this is what American children need. This, you know, this is not doesn't exist on the current market, um, but they were actually very comfortable with going to Disney, uh, for instance, seeking out uh, funding like that. And they also tried to get Sesame Street on commercial networks um, at first, but it wasn't possible. Um, and then came the alliance with PBS, which they really benefit from, like that, you know, that really positions them as something different. Also because um, Joan Gantz Cooney is like, you know, we don't want um we 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 don't want uh commercials uh within the broadcast we don't want sponsorships um, but because there's the funding from there's the funding from carnegie funding from ford funding from the government so it's um it's not commercial commercially funded and that makes you stand out on this market right so it's also a way to go to your funders and say like we fill in this void we are not the vast wasteland Um, and and um but uh, but it needs to be for everybody and i think this is really important like yes there is as they say well we want to do something especially for what they call underprivileged children which you know is mostly um afro-american children um minority children but it has to be for everyone because you cannot put something on a mass medium and a public service broadcasting if you don't got anybody to want everybody to watch it and um, that's also why they operate with this ideal model child from cognitive psychology where they say well there is just like this idea of this four-year-old what can a four-year-old do and and that's not, it's a very cognitive science, uh, cognitive psychology model where you don't consider social, uh, cultural backgrounds of the kids and the interest that they might lead to or the differences in learning patterns that that might lead to. Excellent. Thank you. Um,
1: so let's talk a little bit more about Sesame Street and the Children's Television Workshop as a business. I think this is a really important aspect of of your book um and one of the things that comes through um is that it was also a cross-media franchise right we think of sesame street as a television series but that was just one component of the business model of the narrative structure of the series of its educational mission um can you tell us a little bit more about the business strategies you uncovered and and how did you find them
0: Yeah, I was very interested in the business strategies also because they haven't really been covered in much of the scholarship also domestically. um, From a US side Um, and also because this was much of the motivation for to take the show um, abroad, Um, so it wasn't it was very clear from the beginning that it wasn't very it wasn't financially viable. So you had to make money, you know, because you couldn't, you know, fund, fund like, um, so somebody like the Carnegie Afford, they'll only give you for the first two seasons, three seasons, perhaps, um, and then continue with a little bit, but they will never fund all of it, right? And you have this quite big, uh, work. the workshop is big, it's a big corporation. And um, so you need to get your money from somewhere. And Well, once you've said, like, we don't want commercials, we don't want sponsorships, where is it going to come from? It's going to come from what they call non-broadcast, but which is really merchandise, right? So there's all this Sesame Street merchandise, like bed linen, toys, uh, booklets, uh, games, Lots and it's really fascinating, and they had to sell it to bring in, you know, money f- to keep the show going, um, and also their alliance with books makes sense because parents, especially middle class parents, love. Books, So a way to, you know, say like, oh, your children will learn numbers and letters, like they will learn how to maybe take the first steps in reading. Um, That aligns really makes sense. That gives you a lot of, you know, uh, credibility, gives you a lot of goodwill um and also but i think one of the fascinating cases that i look into was this you know at first everything that they produced that were merchandise had to be educational um and they tested it and but then at some point it's like we can't test this we can't do all of the test setup like we have for the broadcast we just have to be able to sell it and then it's like yeah as long as it's non-gimmicky we can sell it (laughs) And then there's also the alliance with um, Action for Children's Television, which is also anti commercial, like um, where, so there's this really, there's this alliance of seeing, like, not, you know, your nonprofit. Um, you're, uh, you can say you're against commercials, but really you have to sell quite a lot of merchandise, and you have to also then sell abroad the the broadcasting, sell it abroad. So that's the way. So that's why I really looked into the financing and the budget, and it's really interesting. Like follow the money is is quite interesting for a cultural history. So then you know look at the financial side that gives some something that's really different.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and um, your mention of Action for Children's Television reminded me of um, Heather Hendershot's work on Peggy mm-hmm. Sharon. And yes, um, abs-
0: yes, yes.
1: And, and learning how to, you know, and uh, what was interesting in reading um, Hendershot's book, right, was that you know Sharon realized she couldn't go in and advocate censorship; that she had to work with a lot of these people, and and how she was effective at doing it. I mean, this is a really important dimension of children's media and the media culture more broadly, and it's it's exciting when we get more into the policy and the economics. And, and mm, just the, mm. the sheer financing of these things, um, especially if they're going to have this this anti-commercial ethos, but at the mm-hmm. same time, there's there's mm-hmm. cap- capitalist practices at work, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. and I, I I go really into detail with this selling, like selling but appearing not to sell strategy. Like that's I've I've really I think that was fascinating, and I really try to describe it, like how that actually works. Um, how do you craft such a strategy and how are you so successful with crafting such a strategy? That's just really fascinating.
1: Absolutely absolutely. So let's um, let's let's shift now toward um, when the children's television workshop decides to pursue non-US markets mm-hmm. um, how early in the history of Sesame Street does that happen? Um, and how well do those initial efforts go?
0: Happens very early and they go very well at first. Um, Actually, I found like as early as 1968, so even before it airs in the US, um, there is um, the the Children's Television Workshop places sort of this uh, three-page uh, information article about their work in a German magazine for broadcasters, which is widely read in Europe at this point in time. Um, and it's clear from other like that that it's read outside of germany because people definitely know about the workshop very early um, so that's that's you know that i i found that fascinating that that is really early and that they're you know aware of this magazine and they're aware of like potential markets really it's it's not really selling at this point it's more like information about what we're doing and this cool thing we have going on that you might be interested in sure um, and then in like late 69 and they start approaching bbc uh, which is a gatekeeper to commonwealth market um, at this point and also uh, then they enter in early very very early i don't know if it's late 69 or early 1970 they but they enter um, Sesame Street for this Apprition which is a huge children's film festival, television festival at this point in time. Like if you want to see, if you have a te- children's television program and you want it to be seen by the world, that is where you enter uh, for that competition. Um, and that's really successful because um, Sesame Street actually wins one of the prizes in 1970. So it's seen by the, the there's people, there, Broadcasters from 40, you know, from um from more than 30 countries on four continents um, at this festival. So it's really seen by the world. Um and then they also, and this is fascinating, they employ sales agents. Like I've never seen any of those sales agents mentioned in any work. I might have I've really studied lots of system street historiography and I might have overlooked something, but the a um, they, they, they employ uh, people from Britain and people from France. So they have sales agents in both um, uh, London and uh, Paris when we, it's in 1970. So it's really early and it goes quite well in the beginning um, with, um, so the, The London-based agents, they're able to sell quite widely to the world. They also have, like, they're very industrious and very commercial in the way that they approach this. Um, The Paris-based agents are um, less successful. They're trying to figure out how to co-produce with affluent European broadcasters. uh, But eventually, they're actually also able to prepare this market Um, so so you know, quite early on, this strategy, and it is the strategy, it's not something, it, Sesame Workshop says it's coincidental and people just, you know, saw that this was an amazing thing going on in the US, but that's, you know, that's not how cultural ha- transfer happens, right? Somebody has to, you know, make it seen. Somebody has to see it. Um, and then, of course, there's Latin America, um, which is also, you um, Uh, approached, uh, so the the, the Sesame Workshop is very mm, involved in getting um, Sesame Street to Latin America for a pan-Latin American Spanish version uh, from early 1970. Um, But the financial setup in that one is really shaky, uh, despite they get one million from Syrix. But they actually tried to get Coca-Cola to sponsor it first, which is interesting in terms of like cultural imperialism i guess
1: (laughs) absolutely absolutely um can you tell us a little bit more about this like what are you're kind of gesturing towards um some obstacles and some Mm. some roadblocks that they faced Mm. in this process um what were some of the uh criticisms that the children's television workshop faced uh in these markets particularly in western europe
0: um yeah so there's lots of um the, the different things, but um overall in for instance in Western Europe, you have a tradition for uh, you know you have public service broadcasting, so being an alternative to commercial broadcasting is not a good selling point in Western Europe because you have very little commercial broadcasting and the commercial broadcasting you have is very very regulated um but also, progressive, um, progressive education is really on the rise, um, and that means also like a much more child-centered way of thinking about what do children need in terms of children's television. They need something that talks to them as already beings, as human beings who need, you know, t- to be culturally stimulated. Um, talked about as a social group for instance what are their interests um so a very sort of the the very hardcore educational um uh approach that which is the one that i know that sesame street is also fun and lots of music and muppets and but they what they try to sell sesame street as is this educational philosophy that you can teach via television and europeans just not interested in that because they're like we have schools schools will take care of that (laughs) Um, we want to we want to have a cultural education um cultural stimulation arts and crafts and things like that so this industry ends up looking a bit conservative to Europeans, actually, uh, because of this sort of strict education, like educational emphasis that it's being sold on. Um, Yeah. And also there is a, you know, copying um, commercials as a technique to get children glued to the screen for an hour. You know, you don't have Any shows that is an hour long at this point in time uh, in Western Europe for children, it's there like 15, 20, 25 minutes. But also you have a schedule approach. So you have like if you have something informational, you have that, you know, in one program and then you have something entertaining in another program. You don't mix them like because it's all made within one department in Europe you know, it's not different competitors. Like, you know, Sesame Workshop has this one thing, whereas a European broadcast is like, well, we have, you know, news for kids. We have cartoons for kids and we all do it like, you know, in the same schedule and we all collaborate on these things. So it's very different. And that's an obstacle also because Children's Television Workshop sometimes has a little it's a little difficult for them to get this uh, the cultural sensitivity is not always sort of very fine-tuned
1: and this leads nicely into my next question which is um, one of the important interventions in this book I feel like is your focus on the child viewer and particularly how this audience is constructed by these shows right because it's not that Sesame Street was just taken from the US and broadcast around the world, it was localized to different markets. So can you tell us a little bit about how it's modified in different markets and in different contexts, in part because different children or what children need, what children want, what children are getting or not getting is is markedly different in different areas of the world. So, can you talk more about how that is informing your approach and and some of the um, some of yeah, what you uncovered?
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's it's localized very differently in very different countries. It's like the more money you want to pay to work together with Children's Television Workshop, the more localized the product you can get. So that's also uh, interesting. Um, but um, so, for instance, one of one of my case studies is. Western Germany uh, I think is fascinating because it's one of the first co-productions after Latin America so the the workshop starts co-producing in Latin America and they're like ah well it's a very financially it's a very different setup so they want a new setup for Western Germany and they get that but in in West Germany you have come out you come out of the Second World War and the 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 experience of the war and the way in which the war is interpreted at this point in time, it has a huge impact on pedagogy and education in West Germany. And so the way in which also you see children and their relationship with adults, and um, it's thought to be at this point in time, you know, the way in which we can avoid having a repetition of the war the holocaust you know is to have a more critical have children be more critical to be able to stand up to adult authorities so the child the children are seen as a social group that needs to be able to think on their own, be empowered, stand up, speak back, uh, be much more anti-authoritarian, to see themselves as equals with adults in some in some ways, um, and this is a very child-centered focus. And so the Germans they want um, they want this to be the focus um, of their German local production, Sissomstraße. Um, but there's a huge pushback on that from the American side, actually. And it's only because financially um, the children's television workshop cannot lose Germany as a market because where Germany goes, rest of like lots of Europe goes. So if this this if this fails, and that's that financial, that leverage is actually what how the Germans can say to the Americans, you know what, we want this anti-authoritarian education. We want to empower children. You know, we want to show them as equal adu- as adults. We, um, and there is, there are some great examples, I think, in of how this plays out actually in the book. Um, and so, so that's one of the ways that is, you know, you really see this negotiation of what is localization and how, how also financing makes that work.
1: And so in that spirit, I'm, I'm curious, because we've already talked about cultural imperialism, right? And, and I'm wondering about the other side of it, right? Which is um, cultures, contexts, where the viewers were like, no, thank you, we're good. So can you tell us a little bit about um, places where Sesame Street failed, or at least stumbled for a period before it got its footing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think um, the UK is another case study here, but and that's about like the BBC doesn't want it. There's something about fake letters and lawyers, and so really intriguing, and ITV takes it. So that's one, you know, you could have one broadcaster not take it and another just, you know, take it. But I think the third case study is, is Scandinavia, where it's, you know, just reject. Like there's a fascination, as I told you, with the, with the, with kermit for instance like okay so everybody in europe loves the muppets the music and the muppets that's you know and bird and ernie and everybody wants to <laughs> buy just segments with the muppets and the even the bbc wants to buy segments with the muppets but like children's television workshop is like no we have a philosophy it's tied in with all this educational setup the research and testing so you buy that or nothing really um And the Scandinavians, they try for like a year, two years, three years even to collaborate Denmark, Sweden and Norway about a Nordic version, but it completely fails because um, Scandinavia at this point in time, they're really used to collaborating also with no profit, like they're all public service. So they just swap segments and they don't pay for those things. They then, you know, I give you something you give me something um collaborate together and 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 they really don't I think the Scandinavians are very sort of naive like they don't get how the Americans they need to you know that is their brand it's their IP <laughs> uh, they don't get that um the Americans on their side are like you're just like rogue like you <laughs> We can't understand what you want. And also, you know, all this anti- authoritarianism it's too much. Like it's not. So that completely fails. Then Sweden takes, you know, this this open system, which is a spin-off, which Sweden eventually buys. But but it's really interesting to look at this because often we don't get to study cultural demarcation, but there are so many I found so many sources from this like the negotiations also the Scandinavians how they call each other on the phone and they talk about like what they think about the Americans and the Americans talk about you know have internal memos about what they think about the Scandinavians and it's it's been fascinating having this archival material where you have like you have the letters that are outgoing you have the internal letters that You know are circulated before even the outgoing letters then you have the reception in that country and you have like internal discussions with other countries or even on a european level and you have what's going back so it's been really multi-layered sort of cultural transfer it's been fascinating to to see you know what what you keep inside your organization and what you send out is not the same at all
1: yeah it's fascinating to think about production cultures you know in media industries research right but then to think mm-hmm. about how they are constructed transnationally right because because yeah. often work on production cultures is like oh let's look at a set in hollywood or or maybe a you know a runaway production in toronto or here in my my town of new orleans but to think about a production culture that in some ways is not only a literal space but becomes this kind of um metaphorical space right where mm. like the scandinavians and the americans Working across, you know, around the world, or trying to kind of make something happen through this this uh, transnationalization of Sesame Street. I mean, it's super interesting and um, and generative.
0: Um, And it also pushes it pushes this children's television workshop to rethink what is our brand, how little can we sell without losing the sort of integrity of the brand and also the merchandise that they need to sell with the brand. Like they need a lot of brand recognition. That was one of the problems in France. Like they're like the way in which it's broadcast, you know, you don't see that it's our brand. Like we, we, we absolutely need that. Um, because that's one of the ways it's crucial for us to sell all the merchandise that comes with it. And I think also the way, like, I've enjoyed not only working with sort of, you know, Americans working with, you know, Germans or Scandinavians, but also see, like, how did the Danes, the Germans and the Brits talk together about the American when they weren't in the room in the European broadcasting for instance or how did Germans when they argued for or against draw upon experiences that they had seen other people have with co-production in Latin America That's been absolutely fascinating to be able to explore to have this rich material to explore the global level and its impact on a local level
1: Absolutely, and and to see too, in some ways discursively, they were positioning themselves against, um, at least in the U.S. context, like filmation and Hanna Barbera, mm-hmm. yeah. and you know the, the violence or the the nonsense of, of, yeah. of those shows. And, and
0: they saw themselves very much as you know. When going to Europe, you have a you have a, a television fair that's the equivalent of the Cannes Film Fair. You have the Cannes Fe- Television Fair. And so they strategize before going, saying like, we should not come across like, you know, Hanna-Barbera. We are not like them. Mm. We should be more class, like we're more classy. (laughs) We don't push our product. We just display it in a way so that people can avoid seeing it.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's fascinating to think about these intersections of progressive education and kind of liberal elitism, right? Like Mm. that that great society thinking of like, we know how to save the downtrodden um, Mm. and how it manifests itself Mm -hmm. in these media cultures as well. Um, As we kind of head into the the, the final stretch Mm -hmm. here, um, one of the many rewards of your book is reassessing Sesame Street's intentions, practices and legacies, as we've been doing in our conversation here. How do you think your history is challenging these received notions of Sesame Street as altruistic, anti-commercial, maybe even some people might even mistake it for socialist um, in its efforts and its management? And I think your history kind of points to ways that it's not. I mean, um, do you feel that you're kind of uh, going after a sacred cow here?
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's been difficult, right? It's like, I didn't set out to dig into dirt. <clears throat> like I should have, maybe that was naive of me, like following money. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not cute, Um But it's been fascinating to to follow the materiality of transfer and see, you know, things doesn't you know, they don't spread into the world just because people find them fascinating. like There are lots of things that are fantastic, which but which stay local because they're never marketed outside. You know, it has to spread in some way right it's not you don't you're not as a european broadcaster in the in 1970s thinking like oh what's going on in the u.s you you can't google it you can't watch it on youtube you can't see it anywhere so if you have a show in the u.s you you make it travel and that's been fascinating and i think but also i think you know it wasn't you know on the u.s market sesame street wasn't financially viable there was no there was no business model where it could stay you know anti-commercial it just couldn't because how was it supposed to make money it couldn't do it so they had to seek a revenue elsewhere um and I think also there was this really this sense that we are helping people we you know we are doing something good for the world we believe in cognitive you know cognitive psychology the model child psychonometrics We we do you know this fascinating science of psychology. We there is you know they talked about often as the show was culture free, and they really did believe in a culture free way of thinking about children, media, and education. Mm-hmm. And then there is the pushback in Europe because there you are like no culture free no. <laughs> Uh, That doesn't work here. Um, And I think also there is this really, you know, believe in equality of opportunity um, and, uh, you know, helping all kinds of children, underprivileged children in the U.S. And I think there is really, you know, I think that's very sincere. I think it's just very naive.
1: Mm. Yeah. No. Or
0: it's very of its time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's very of its time and you know we shouldn't judge people I shouldn't have said naive it's just you know it's very bound it's it's a way this this way that the the CTV model which is a research testing and educational model tying it in with a show it is it is a very 1970s model way of thinking about childhood that That is, and I think it's been, I think childhood studies especially has been great because there was this, you know, okay, so in Sesame Street, there are becomings, right? It's like empowering children through education to do better later in life, whereas we're like, no, we want to empower children in the here and now, we tell them about the world, we tell them about, you know, how to stand up to adult authorities. We tell them how to, you know, about sibling rivalry, jealousy, um, all these things that they encounter in their everyday lives and we empower them in that way. So it's a very, it's, it's been fascinating to compare and, and to see, you know, how this story about Sesame Street change when, when you do that.
1: Yeah, I I think your answer there was so revealing for me and so useful, because I think there is a temptation to maybe misread your work as kind of following the strain that Disney scholarship has gone in. Um, Mm -hmm. And I say this as a Disney scholar, right, where Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, we thought they were innocent, but they're actually, you know, rabid capitalists. And I think you make an important correction there in that kind of potentially misreading Sesame Street in the same way by saying like, no, they couldn't have survived In Mm -hmm. the American market or in the global marketplace without adapting some kinds of, you know, commercial strategies, Mm -hmm. even though they were presenting this kind of anti-commercial ethos and that kind of compromise is so fascinating and so rich and And in the latter part of your answer, I really appreciate it, not only the turn to business practices of Sesame Street, Mm. but understanding that they're historicized, right, Mm -hmm. that that they're not necessarily strategies that would work today, but in that moment, with that understanding of the audience, with that understanding of the market, here's how we're going to navigate it. And and Mm. that kind of work, I think, is really useful for for historians and media scholars alike. Thank you. So... What are you currently working on? It sounds like you spent many years on this one, and I, I you know do do you feel like you're 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 sending your child off to school now or or are you continuing on this path with more work on Sesame street or are you taking a new uh new avenue
0: um so i i um I've been very fascinated. It's, it's been great doing this project, but I think, you know, the next couple of months, it'll be all be all about Sesame Street. <laughs> but I think after that, I've actually, I've uh, received um, some funding from the Carlsberg Foundation, um, in De- which funds a lot of, of um, humanistic and, and social science research in Denmark. And um, you can get to, uh, so I've proposed a new monograph where I would like to write essays about um, public debates about children and media mm. um so and I, because I'm really fascinated about the way in which these become so much more polarized uh, polarized um you know also and I'm I'm often I'm often interviewed for Danish media about these debates so you know like a drag queen you know making a show you know dressing up in a public library you know mm-hmm. for, uh, it copied a lot, you know, from US debates, you know what these are like, but oh, so, yes. <laughs> somehow, I often, often find myself as a as an expert talking about like, why is it when it's about children, it gets so there's so much heat. And so little light. Um, right. It's like just um, so I've, I want to look at this historically. I've I've done so for Scandinavia only in a in a in a previous book that was published while I actually did the system history thing. <laughs> um, but uh, I think. I also want to use uh, web sources. So archive webs, I'm very, as a digital historian, I'm very fascinated about like the potential to use archive web sources. So I'm trying to, to look at the base in the US, the UK and Scandinavia and compare sort of how do we discuss, you know, Teletubbies and... Homosexuality, SpongeBob, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, how do we look at you know th- something like screen time? So all these debates, I want to, but I want to do a more popular book. I I would prefer to write like twenty essays about, I think, uh debates about children and culture, the culture consumption. So yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, just sitting here thinking about that topic in the U.S. context, I'm thinking like the pain Fund studies or Seduction of the Innocent, right, in comic yes. books. I yes. mean, um. And and you know I've done some work on Saturday morning cartoons and w- what are Saturday morning cartoons doing to children right I mean it's it's a really rich area and I yeah look and, but to I it. I
0: would really love to work with sort of more like you know eighties nineties notes like you know like video games get, yeah yeah um, and 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 especially I think there's lots of potential for historians and media historians to to work with archive web which we haven't really taken advantage of yet and I you know, I'd really like to do that.
1: Excellent. Well, when you finish it, hopefully you'll come back on the podcast.
0: Oh, it uh, would be a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Hilla. Uh, the book is Sesame Street, A Transnational History, available now from Oxford University Press and other online booksellers. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books and Media on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.